that is some feel-good 80s music right there, if I've ever heard some. Welcome, everybody. This is episode number 29 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And those of you pop culture aficionados out there who know exactly what movie that song is from, we'll tell you later on in the episode, of course. But with that reference, you can probably guess what the main topic of this particular episode is going to be. We are going to give you guys an update on the madness that is the California gubernatorial recall election. Several more candidates have jumped in over the last few days. And the deadline is fast approaching for any last stragglers to jump in. We're going to talk about that. We are going to be taking aim, metaphorically, at one of the most, shall we say, polarizing commentators on the right right now. Someone who deserves to be called out. I think we can both agree she deserves to be called out. And that's that's a hint right there who it is. We will be talking about that. We will be talking about some of the biggest, one of the most important races, I think, in the upcoming 2022 election cycle and what it means for the future of the right and the Republican Party Remember, of course, to follow all of our content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media websites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you are feeling so generous, consider donating and supporting what we do here at The Right Take at righttakepodcast.com slash support. So, Jacob, I, I saw just earlier today this was uh, trending on Twitter. Hashtag don't Fauci my Florida. Want to give us an update on that as the resident of uh, former Floridian? I check on on Twitter like once a week. Just I've got a burner account. I just go on there just to see what the what the liberal what's what's floating around the liberal cesspool. But um, yeah, I was kind of uh, wondering what in the world they're talking about, and I clicked on the hashtag, and it turns out it looks like uh, their governor down there, uh, Ron DeSantis, is selling some merchandise, like selling some T-shirts that say "Don't Fauci My Florida." Kind of building off the "Don't California My Texas" meme that a lot of Texans <laughs> oh, will yeah. will put up talking about California's moving to Texas, but. The it's funny because all the Twitterati's just went berserk. I mean, I thought it was kind of I thought it was kind of dopey. I thought it was kind of kind of something that, you might, something that some older Republicans might buy into. But you know, instead of just ignoring it and letting him make a, a few extra dollars off sell, selling some T-shirts, they instead decide to blow it up, make it a trending hashtag, and act like it's the the world is coming to an end because this governor decided to make a lame joke on some T-shirts. But yeah, they were just going berserk. It was I had a I had a real kick out of reading some of the replies. That's what it means to be said. The merits of uh, own the libs conservatism, which is all about just basically trolling them with you know these going to colleges and whatnot or these kind of stunts. That some say that those are really kind of uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel for like really cheap applause from you know the conservative base. But the one thing that is so satisfying about this, you and I were talking about this uh, just before we went on the air, is that the only thing more satisfying than those jokes are the left's reactions. They just get so deranged and they freak out over a joke, over a literal joke. Because uh, in this case, you know, their their Saint Anthony Fauci of the <laughs> coronavirus pandemic has been insulted. Like all around D.C., whenever this was started, I think in May of last year, people started putting up yard signs. That said, thank you, Dr. Fauci. Oh, yeah. All the, the murals of him and just like, oh, I mean, it's almost as bad as the St. George Floyd of patron saint of fentanyl. You know, it's just it's it's really Who got, uh, Oh, did you see his uh, mural got struck <laughs> down by lightning? An act of God, apparently. Yeah, I guess a mural in what, Ohio, I think, was literally struck right on the face of George Floyd on the mural, was struck by lightning and literally exploded. It, it was like a concrete wall that got struck, a, too. Like how many? Wall, yeah, but we, yeah, that we've was, got that enough was, saints already. We don't need one more saint but yeah it's a, that's the thing uh own the libs conservatism does get kind of lame and aggravating at times but when you see the way the left reacts to this stuff it makes it worth it it's like okay i understand now like it makes sense to keep doing this and this is why conservatives are going to keep doing this stuff 
as long as they continue to get the reaction they want. Because let's face it, the reaction is satisfying. Like it's very gratifying to see these these 45-year-old women, wine-sipping women who have majored in cat you know, four or five different – yeah, these, these 45-year-old cat ladies who have like three master's degrees in the liberal arts and you know sitting around spending half their day on Twitter just going berserk over every little thing that a Republican governor did. It is, it is quite satisfying, and there are a few people who could trigger the left greater than Ron DeSantis does, Donald Trump being one of them. And of course, another candidate for that title would be any hypothetical Republican who – by a miracle of God, would win this upcoming recall election in California. So the latest update, we've talked about this previously, it has been confirmed the official date for the California gubernatorial recall election is September 14th. So just two months from now, two months from now, which is not a lot of time. It's not even going to be in November, you know, the usual month of elections. So people are, you know, hitting the road, hitting the ground running and getting ready to go. The final deadline for filing for candidacy in this election is this Friday, July 16th. And at this time, a couple more candidates have jumped in. And pretty much, I think pretty much everyone who is going to jump in is going to jump in. I'm going to give you the rundown real quick of the seven major Republican candidates. First off, Rick Grinnell, former ambassador to Germany and acting DNI, director of national intelligence under the Trump administration, was constantly throwing out speculation that he would run, but he ultimately has decided not to. Instead, he created a PAC called Fixing California, which is focused on like grassroots organizing efforts at the ground and local and county level in California, which good for him. That I think that is actually a good thing that needs to be done. Uh, but unfortunately, that kind of left a big hole in the field because he would have been the clear Trump candidate. Because regardless of what you may think, yes, it's California, it's heavily blue, but despite the fact that it is the Democrat stronghold, over 11 million votes for Joe Biden in 2020 in that state, more than any other candidate in any statewide election ever in American history. Donald Trump in 2020 got 6 million votes in the state, which is the record for the highest amount of votes ever received by a Republican presidential candidate in a single state. He got more Republican votes in California last year than he did in Texas. I think he got about 5.8 million in Texas, a state that he won. So there are 6 million disgruntled Trump voters living in California, and they and they love Trump, regardless of you know the moderate squish Republicans at the top of the party, and we'll talk about those people in just a bit. The base there loves Trump, and they will never stop loving Trump. So without the Trump candidate that Rick Grinnell is going to be, there's a big gaping hole in the field. So on Tuesday, the latest candidate to jump in was none other than nationally syndicated talk radio host and frequent Fox News contributor Larry Elder. Larry Elder, who most often appears on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News and has a radio show, a daily radio show on the Salem Radio Network, announced that he is going to run for governor. And the main issue he's going to focus on is crime. He is His nickname is the Sage of South Central because he is from Los Angeles. So obviously his area, the state especially, is one of the ones seeing an absolute spike in crime. And he's talked about how Democrats, especially Governor Newsom, are doing nothing to deal with crime and the subsequent, the kind of parallel issue of homelessness. So he jumped in and he's bringing all this star power. He's really exciting conservative voters, as he well should. He's going to star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I literally didn't even know that until the other day. This guy could be the one, the, the closest thing to a Schwarzenegger candidate in terms of the star power he brings, which is what is needed because the rest of the field is not impressive. We're going to go through them right now. I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, was from the outside looking in, who's not from California, and she said, you know, when she saw the announcement that Elder was jumping in, she said, man, it really seems like it's a two-way race between Elder and, and Bruce Jenner. And I'm like, no, it's, it's not just a two-way between those two, I can assure you. There are seven main candidates, including Elder. We're going to go through the list here. John Cox, 
He was the Republican nominee for governor in 2018 when, as we talked about in a previous episode, he got slaughtered by Gavin Newsom in the general in one of the biggest landslides in over the, the biggest landslide in over half a century. And he, this this guy, I don't even know what this guy even is. I, I can't figure this guy out. He's from Illinois originally. He's a businessman who has run for so many offices. He ran for a local county office in Cook County. He ran for the House of Representatives a couple of times. He even ran for president very briefly. He's one of those very little known also rands who ran in 2008 before dropping out very quickly. He's never won a single election in his life. And then suddenly this guy three years ago in 2018 decided, you know what is a great use of my time and money and resources? I'm going to move to California and run for governor as a Republican. And he did. And again, despite his bizarre political antics, he is somehow a self-made multimillionaire. He's got a lot of money to spend and he spent it and he used it to basically buy the nomination last time away from a more grassroots conservative, a state assemblyman named Travis Allen. And he won the Republican nomination. And this needs to be said too, by the way, I'm going to, this is a litmus test for me for most Republicans. He was a never Trumper in 2016. He did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Then come 2018, even he realized, you know, with his limited political knowledge, even he knew he had to have Trump's support. So apparently he worked on Newt Gingrich's campaign in 2012. He was a finance chair or something. So he's close to Gingrich. And Gingrich, of course, is very high up in Trump world. He's one of Trump's most vocal supporters. Cox called up Gingrich and in the primary and said, hey, I need the boss's endorsement. Can you get it for me? And sure enough, President Trump, in one of the very few things for which I will ever criticize him, made a bad endorsement, and he picked John Cox over Travis Allen. So Cox was the nominee and then got crushed by Gavin Newsom. He's running again for some reason. Who knows why? But he's running. Doug Osi, a former congressman who served from 1999 to 2005, so way back, you know, end of the Clinton years and beginning of the Bush Jr. years. I don't know much about this guy. He briefly ran in the 2018 governor's race and then dropped out way before the primary. And admittedly, very smart move. He said, hey, I realize that my presence is going to split the Republican vote even further. And we have to get a Republican because through the top two system they have there, we have to get a Republican in the general election. So I'm dropping out. So a respectable move from him. I don't know much about him other than he pledged when he first ran in 1998 in his first election that he would impose term limits on himself and serve no more than three terms in the House, which he did. He was reelected in 2000 and then 2002 and then chose not to run again in 04. So he, when was the last time any political figure ever imposed term limits on themselves and honored that? Like that to me is, that's pretty respectable, uh, but he is very much kind of old news. He's not been active for a long time. Kevin Kiley, a member of the California State Assembly, one of the younger members, and allegedly, apparently he was one of the earlier supporters of the recall. The California Republican leadership was not supportive of the recall at first because they never thought it would get on the ballot, but now it's on the ballot. So he gets to be kind of like those who were for Trump early on. He can say, hey, you know, I was with this from the beginning. Unfortunately, what little I know about this guy is not that great. As recently as 2019, this guy was a never Trumper. 2019. He ran for a special election for the California State Senate for a seat that was open due to a resignation. And it's in one of the few deep ruby red districts of the state. The top two candidates ended up being two Republicans. It was him and the former assembly minority leader, Brian Dolly. So two Republicans duking out in the general election. One of the mailers that the Kevin Kiley campaign sent out against Dolly was included a photo of Dolly with President Trump in the Oval Office bashing him for that, saying, look at this guy taking a photo with Trump. We don't need no Trump supporter in this race. Of course, Dolly, the Trump supporter, did go on to win the general election because Kylie just horribly misread his constituency. And someone who was bashing Trump that recently when Trump was in office just blows my mind. So I don't support this guy. I don't trust this guy. Would definitely skip on that. Ted Gaines, a, this guy jumped in very quietly just the other day. He didn't even make an announcement or anything, but he has a campaign website and Politico covered that he did jump into the race. 
a former state senator who was elected to the Board of Equalization, which is this weird like statewide entity that has uh, four elected members across four very big geographical districts in California. As of 2018, he is the only Republican on this board. The other three are Democrats. Uh, don't know too much about him, but he kept his uh, declaration very, very quiet, which is a little bit odd. You think he would make more of a big deal about that. Don't know much about him. I wish I could provide more input, but unfortunately I can't. And then here we go to the last two, my least favorite candidates, two of the bigger candidates. So Jenner, of course, former Olympian athlete, and then famously married into the wrong family, married into the Jenner Kardashian family, and it was upstaged in fame, in tabloid fame by own daughters. So he is the, definitely the largest name recognition just by virtue of the absolute trash reality TV with which associated. So people thought, oh, well, maybe this is the, the Schwarzenegger type candidate. We need a star candidate. But being transgender, of course, has drawn the ire of a lot of conservatives who say, what has our party come to that we're, some people are seriously considering voting for a literal transgender person? That is one more candidate who now appears to have been completely upstaged in the star power department by Larry Elder. And I say to that, good. Last candidate. This is one that doesn't get talked about nearly enough like in the mainstream media. Again, the major focus is going to go to the celebrities like Larry Elder and, and Jenner. Kevin Falconer. The former mayor of San Diego. This guy has been an absolute darling of the California GOP leadership for so long. This guy first got elected mayor of San Diego in 2014 in a special election after the Democrat then Bob Filner was forced to resign due to two different scandals he had going on, a sex scandal and a financial corruption scandal. So that obviously completely tainted the Democratic Party of San Diego, which naturally lent itself to a Republican benefiting from that to probably win the, the special election. And Again, it's a special election. It's an off-year election. It was 2013, 2014 in the midst of the Obama administration. A republic. Those conditions favor a Republican, obviously. So Falconer went on to win that election. He was a former San Diego city councilman before that. And then he got reelected in 2016 to a full uh, four-year term. And they've been clamoring. They, the California GOP leadership, the donor and consultant class, has been drooling over this guy. They've been begging for this guy to run for governor or senator or something for years. In 2018, they tried to draft him to run and he didn't do it. He finished his term as mayor of San Diego. So now he's got nothing better to do. So now he's running. And the California GOP leadership, the chairwoman there, Jessica Patterson, they are trying to cram down an official party endorsement of this guy, even though he is, the best way I can put this, he is the Jeb Bush of this race. He is the party darling, but the base wants nothing to do with him. There's no excitement for him. They would much rather have a Larry Elder or some of these other candidates. And I think it would be great. He's my least favorite candidate. I would love to see this guy just get trounced and come in like fourth or fifth out of the Republican candidates. Some of the reasons why it needs to be said, every single thing I'm about to tell you here is 100% true about Kevin Falconer. And remember, this guy is a Republican. <clears throat> Kevin Falconer is pro-gun control, pro-tax increase, pro-gay marriage, pro-abortion, pro-amnesty open borders, believes in global warming, and is anti-Trump. And every single one of these is backed up by his tenure as mayor of San Diego. He literally raised taxes on his city on multiple occasions to fund pet projects for his donors, which even the GOP usually, that's the sacred cow of GOP, is tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. He raised taxes on multiple occasions. He gave a speech, among other things, back in uh, 2017, I think, talking about the need for a new California Republican Party, which, among other things, accepts the science on global warming. We've all heard that one before. And this was the part that just absolutely destroyed this guy, in my opinion. I'll never support this guy. He described San Diego and Tijuana, right on the other side of the border in Mexico, San Diego and Tijuana as, quote, one giant mega region moving forward together. <laughs> so that, that tells you all you need to go. This guy is literally just is the California Republican in a nutshell. He's a Democrat 
pretending to be a Republican. And for that reason, this guy is the worst one. He absolutely deserves to lose more than any of them. Uh, Jenner may be the one getting the most ire for being, you know, a literal transgender person, and I get that, but Jenner's a close second worst for me behind Falconer. But Jenner is the one making the headlines right now, especially with rising backlash from conservatives, including at the most recent CPAC. There was a second CPAC, Conservative Political Action Conference, held in Dallas, and Jenner made an appearance there. And apparently some people there did not like seeing him, and several people heckled him and said he has no business being in the conservative movement or he should not be running for governor of California, or at least as a Republican. And that angered one very uh, particularly loud, shall we say, loud <laughs> and oftentimes obnoxious commentator on the right. So Jacob, I didn't even know that this was going on until the story came out. I didn't know they were having a second CPAC. Is this normal? Do what, when do they, they don't normally have second CPACs, do they? Not to my knowledge. This is I think this is a new thing they're starting to do, that they want it to kind of keep the energy going. I mean, also kind of in the in the wake of coronavirus, and they still kind of like opening back up slowly. Because you remember the previous CPAC, it's always been at National Harbor, you know, in Maryland, just across the river here. But they were forced to cancel it from that venue because of covid last or earlier this year so they had it in florida instead of uh, maryland for like the first time ever mm -hmm. so they, i think they're kind of using they use that sudden change as a result of covid to look at maybe expanding to other locations like in this case texas which is another republican bastion so uh, i mean yeah this is new and it could become the new normal for them so this is from yahoo news talking about the alleged attacks on jenner it says among those who condemned the anti-trans attacks was fox commentator and right-wing fear monger tommy laren now this is a, an opinion piece as you can tell Quote, hearing how some conservatives treated Caitlyn Jenner at CPAC makes my blood boil. There's no room for your hate in the America First movement, Laren tweeted. Quote, we believe in freedom and we believe in limited government. The way she chooses to live her personal life harms you in no way, end quote. After finding herself on the receiving end of criticism among her fellow conservatives, Laren sent another tweet in support of the former reality star and athlete. Quote, the attacks on at Caitlyn underscore Jenner are despicable. I'll go to bat for her every single time. And if you want to take my quote, conservative card for it, take it and shove it, she posted. Quote, your mob is no better than the left's, and in fact, it's uglier. Now, she went on this Twitter tirade because... Multiple tweets. Yeah. A because, lot of tweets. <laughs> yeah, this is just two of them that Yahoo picked up. I think you were saying, weren't you saying earlier that she deleted some of them that she had posted? She appears to have deleted a couple. I try opening them, and it says, uh, something went wrong, try again. So she went on this Twitter rampage because apparently one person was following Jenner around as he was talking to people and heckling him from behind. But the fact that she had to go out of her way to do this and also saying that your mob is no better than the left's, and in fact it's uglier— it's not a mob. Like it was one, two. It's a couple of hecklers. A couple it's not, of hecklers. They're, they're not burning down a business, Tommy. Yeah, exactly. Like nobody's. I. It, it would be kind of neat if the right was organized enough to organize literal protest mobs, like nonviolent protest mobs in the streets every time there was a transgender activist walking around. That would be pretty neat. But the right is nowhere near that organized. The right is, in fact, so disorganized and so whipped. Like it's such a whip puppy right now that we're even having transgenders run for the Republican gubernatorial race in California. So in attending CPAC. So th the fact that the idea that she would call this a mob is in itself hilarious. But they go on, they say, despite this is Danielle Campoamore who wrote this. She says, despite Laren's show of support for Jenner and decided stance against transphobia, it's quite ironic that the conservative talking head is suddenly casting herself as an ally. Let's not forget Laren actually has a storied history of anti-trans statements and tweets that is easily traceable. In 2019, 
She took issue with the Gillette ad featuring the transgender boys shaving for the first time, tweeting, quote, it's a little much to normalize and promote high school age kids undergoing hormone therapy and gender reassignment, don't you think? End quote. Now, this is this is kind of interesting because obviously the left, they're calling her out for her hypocrisy, like the right always likes to call out the left for its hypocrisy, saying, oh, you're going to stand up for Caitlyn Jenner, but you're not go- you're not going to disavow these tweets that you made in the past, you know, attacking the transgender ideology, attacking a company that's trying to promote the transgender ideology. Because if you get down to it, either you support transgenderism or you don't. If you do support transgenderism and you think it's perfectly fine for somebody to transition, for somebody to support this kind of stuff, then you can't be against a company promoting transgenderism as normal, like showing a transgender boy who is shaven for the first time. Well, you know, wow, this is what a this is what a razor feels like against your. Oh, I'm actually growing facial hair. So you know, this kind of stuff. You can't be for one aspect of this and be against the other aspect of this. It what it makes it look like is she's just waffling with the wind. You know, at the time, the right was very strong, very organized against this kind of stuff with Donald Trump defeated and the right obviously in retreat, having to have two CPAC conferences in one year and an off election year. The right is obviously trying to claw its way back into power. So it's kind of on its knees looking for any kind of allies it can find. She sees it down and she's already a social liberal, as we're going to talk about here in a second. So she just uses this as an opportunity to try to push the Republican Party further to the right, further to the left, actually, and call it America first. Yeah, because, of course, when it comes to social issues, her she she first became famous, I think, back in like, what, 2016 ish. She went she worked for uh, One America News, I believe, when she first got started and she did a rant. She just did like a really loud, screaming, viral rant about something. I don't even remember what it was. About two and a half minutes. And when it vi- it went viral, and people were like, oh, look at this young, beautiful, conservative woman calling out the left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And subsequently, she went on to have a show at The Blaze, you know, Glenn Beck's outfit. And then. Despite having previously been pro-life, she uh, like a good conservative, she suddenly flip-flopped on abortion out of nowhere in, uh, what, 2017, I think, 2018 maybe? Well, because I remember what happened is she was invited to go on The View, you know, those those five, you know, harpy lefty women, uh, brought her onto The View to challenge her on abortion. And on that show, on The View, she suddenly declared, oh, no, no, I, I'm pro-choice now. I, I no longer support, you know, the pro-life movement. And it's been speculated, of course, that she probably flip-flopped in that moment because she did not want to have to go up against five women at once because you know, you know how they are. Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar, they'll just tear the Oh, yeah, they would, apart, have, like, they would eat her lunch. I mean, she lost. She clearly lost the little debate she had, the little mini-debate she had with Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. Oh, yeah. I mean, she, I she had her that. lunch eaten on that exactly. one. Exactly. And this, is, this seems to be a, a, a pattern with her. She will... Whenever she's up against opposition, she tries to she tries to manage her beliefs to in such a way to where they fit in with her peer group and they fit in with the people that are around her at that particular time. But yet she'll throw red meat out for viral posts, for viral videos, and in order to gain clout with the right. So as an example, another thing that Campbell Moore points out in this Yahoo article is that she went out of her way to misgender and dead name Chelsea Manning, which is that if you remember the, Chelsea Manning the, was the traitor. The, yeah, yeah the, the, the traitor. The the guy who transitioned and became Chelsea Manning and they call it Bra- dead name. Bradley Manning was the original name and like he leaked secrets or something, like government secrets, kinda like Edward Snowden style, but he was literally in the army. So they so they call it dead naming whenever you like use their original name and so she went out of her way to to call him the original name in order to get clout in order to build obviously with the anti transgender conservative base. She also has come out very strongly against men who have transitioned into women competing Mm -hmm. in women's Women's sports. sports. Again, if you're going to stand up for someone who's transgender like Caitlyn Jenner and then at the same time waffle on all this other stuff, it shows you're basically just flowing with the – you're going with the flow. 
You're trying to fit in with whatever group you're in. And this is what, like you pointed out on The View, she probably just decided in that very moment when she was questioned on it that she was, wasn't going to have all these five women gang up on her and beat her up, verbally beat her up over this issue. So she said, quote, I'm pro-choice and here's why. I'm someone that's for limited government. So I can sit here and be a hypocrite and say I'm for limited government, but I think the government should decide what women do with their bodies. I can sit here and say that as a Republican. I can say, you know what? I'm for limited government, so stay out of my guns and you can stay out of my body as well. She later on Twitter defended her position when she was taken to task by other conservatives who were calling her out for it. And listen to this. She said, quote, I speak my truth. If you don't like it tough, I will always be honest and stand in my truth. My truth. My that, truth. Sounds like, that sounds kind of like a leftist terminology. Yes, exactly. Not the truth, my truth. She's a social liberal. She is pro-choice. She's pro-same-sex marriage. She is using the left's terminology. I speak – whenever she's called out on something, she immediately says, well, this is my truth. You can't question me on my truth. There, you know, there is no objective truth. We all have our own individual truth, and I can't question your truth because I, I don't have your lived experiences, which makes me question, what lived experiences does she have that would make her be pro-choice? You know exactly what you're talking Just about. Just throw I'm, that out friends there. Friends of mine and I were discussing other possible theories as to the sun flip-flop but besides the pressure from the view. But either way— But that's I, where that comes from. That's where that right, terminology comes from. I'm speaking my truth because I have lived experiences experience. that you don't know or mm. understand, so you can't question my truth. Anyway, uh, I'll just move on from that. Well, because so, either way, I just want to summarize real quick because that did leave when she flip-flopped on abortion, which she did. She subsequently got fired from the blaze. You know, Glenn Beck said, hey, you're not going to stand for, a, you know, pro-life, you know, being against abortion. We're going to let you go. And that caused its own kind of firestorm on the right. Uh, now, of course, with cancel culture, we all know it's wrong for people to be fired for their political opinions. This is one politically motivated firing I support because she literally went against one of the core missions of the blaze. She turned on one of their major conservative issues, in which case, yeah, like if, you know, if you're a, a, so a self-described socialist who tries to work at the Heritage Foundation and you declare you're a socialist and you work there and they fire you, they're justified. You know, that's the right to do that. It's a political organization exactly, just yeah. like the blaze. So she deserved to be fired in that case. And of course, I remember predicting that the moment she got fired from the blaze, I said, Fox is going to sweep her up. And sure enough, they did. Except they kind of shuffled her off to their little uh, Fox Nation subscribers only thing, which nobody watches. But so she she's makes she's frequently on Fox on that outnumbered show and others. So, but anyway, so after criticizing the Alabama ba abortion ban, if you remember, uh, Alabama passed a very strict anti-abortion bill that banned abortion yes. in most cases. She doubled down in a Fox art, uh, Fox News article on her pro-choice position, saying, "Quote." If the pro-life movement really wants to support women to ultimately choose life when making the most difficult decision they've, uh, they've ever had to make, do you really think a government mandate is the way to do it? The great thing about the conservative movement is that we welcome differences of opinion, or at least we should. So this is the same opinion that liberal, that pro-choice liberals have on the abortion position, which shows that she's really – there is no daylight between her position and the average pro-choice Democrat. She says if the – basically saying if the pro-life movement really wants to help women to choose life, then why well then, then do you, why would you want to use a government mandate to do that? That's like saying if you really want to help people stop robbing banks, then wouldn't a better way to, uh, to stop people from robbing banks be to get the government out of it? I was just going to say like you know, what's the point of government outlawing murder then by that same logic that she's using? It's exactly. Like why, why outlaw any kind of crime? The, the point of the pro-life movement is that abortion is a crime. It's murder. It's genocide. It's infanticide. 
So this idea, which, by the way, just to differentiate, I'm for prosecuting the abortion doctors. I, I believe I don't, I don't believe that women who go to an abortion doctor to have an abortion should be prosecuted. Arguably, but, I would say prosecute the abortion doctors even worse than the transgender surgery doctors. Like yeah. transgender surgery is evil and it's child abuse, and those doctors definitely deserve to be put under the jail. But it's even worse for the abortion doctors who are literally killing babies. That's that's the only thing I can imagine that's even worse than child mutilation. Correct, yes. But her argument just shows she doesn't understand the pro-life movement. And this is the thing a lot of liberals see in the pro-life movement. They look at it like the temperance movement. The temperance movement was the movement back in the 1800s that tried to get people to stop drinking. Well, obviously, they moved from that to let's, out, let's completely outlaw alcohol. So they see it as the same way. It's not the same thing. Like it, it's not the same way. People the, – the temperance movement did not see alcohol drinking the same way that the pro-life movement sees abortion, and the temperance movement wanted to outlaw alcohol. So trying to convince pro-lifers that let's just try to convince women not to have an abortion and let's get the government out of it. Don't use the government to stop it from happening. No, it's not going to work, and it shows she doesn't – she's so far removed from the average conservative on this position. There's no – and her, for her to try to write an op-ed and explain her position and convince people to adopt her position is just ludicrous. But what's interesting is she supported Neil Gorsuch's decision to include homosexuals and transgenders in with civil rights protections back at – I don't remember the name of the of the case. This was from last summer whenever he included – Gorsuch sided with the liberals on the Supreme Court in order to include transgenders and homosexuals in with the civil rights protections, which means if you're a Christian school – and you hire someone and they decide to have a sex change and become transgender, you can't fire them because of that, even if it goes against what you believe according to your religion. That means if you hire somebody, you think that they're straight and that they end up coming out as homosexual, you can't fire them, even if though their lifestyle goes against what you believe, because that would be a violation of their civil rights. You have to keep them on, even if they promote homosexuality to the students, you can't fire them for that. So this is why this is so insidious and so this is such an attack on religious liberty. Well, she supports that. She supports that decision. And what's interesting is she calls herself a constitutional conservative. And she's you know, in her defense of this decision, she said, quote, you can be Christian conservative and a proud Trump supporter and believe people should not be fired for who they love or the lifestyle they lead outside of the workplace, end quote. Now, what's interesting is you can have that opinion but still be against the decision that Gorsuch made to side with the liberal justices. Because Supreme Court law, and this is one thing that Amy Coney Barrett did a really good job of when during her confirmation process was explaining that just because a Supreme Court justice believes a certain way politically doesn't mean that he's going to align up with that in his decisions because he's supposed to rule based on the Constitution. And there is no constitutional protection in the civil rights legislation, which is what they were supposed to be basing that rule off of, that gives – the government the right to force a Christian school or a Muslim school or any kind of religious school or even a secular school to keep someone because of their you know gender ideology, their gender identification or their sexual orientation. And if she were a constitutional conservative, she would have said something like, OK, I agree with the outcome, but I can't agree with this decision. I wish that this had gone through Congress, yada, yada, yada. So she went on. She said, quote, attempting to take away someone's conservative card for being pro-choice or pro-same-sex marriage or pro-protecting good and decent people from true discrimination in the workplace is why so many young people don't feel the conservative movement is their movement. So we may wonder, OK, so what what is conservative to Tommy Lahren? Like what does she consider conservative? So here's what she says about these young people that don't want to jump on the conservative bandwagon because of the trans issue, because of same-sex marriage, because of all the pro-lifers dominating the conservative movement. She said, quote, 
They're fiscally conservative, support law enforcement, support border enforcement, support the military, support the First and Second Amendment, limited government, capitalism, and agree with 90% of the things President Trump stands for, but they feel like they cannot call themselves conservatives because they're pro-choice or support gay rights, end quote. So the purpose of conservatism is to make the country more conservative or to conserve the country in its culture, not to fill the pews to swell attendance. This is like a church saying, you know what? These people, they agree with everything they say, everything that we believe in. They agree with 90% of the Bible, but they just, they've got a problem with the virgin birth. They've got a problem with the divinity of Jesus. They've got a problem with the resurrection and they've got a problem with the ascension. So let's just ignore those four things and hush up and stop talking about those four things. And then we'll try to get them to come fill our church pews so they can give us money and they can swell the church coffers and they can swell our attendance. And we'll look like we have a very young, thriving church. Now, they don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ, the divinity, the resurrection or the ascension. They don't believe any of that stuff. So we'll just stop talking about it. And that's basically what she's trying to do with conservatism. And it lets, so let's break down this just to close out this topic. Let's break down these uh, these things that these young people uh, that she says can't become conservatives because of the social issues support. So fiscally conservative. Donald Trump is not fiscally conservative. Like he's not really fiscally conservative, no. especially when you compare him to the other libertarianish candidates in the 2016 Republican race. He supported increased spending on, among other things, uh, infrastructure, for example. He wanted to do an infrastructure bill, which we talked about in a previous episode. Of course, the Republican Party wouldn't let him have that because government spending is bad. But he literally wanted to, he wanted to keep certain welfare programs in place, and he wanted to increase spending on domestic American infrastructure. If you look at DeSantis, who is arguably the most Trumpian governor in the country right now, he's not really that much of a fiscal conservative. Like he wanted, more, he wanted more money from the Biden administration. He was actually complaining that Florida didn't get more money from the federal government, whereas Rick Scott was arguing that Florida should give back the money that they got. That shows the difference between a Tea Party conservative and an America First conservative. The Tea Party and the MAGA movement are not the same thing. There's a lot of overlap, and a lot of the Tea Partiers became MAGA people, just like a lot of the Ron Paul people became MAGA people, but they're not the same thing. Those people who became MAGA people, many of them altered some of their views on fiscal issues. So to say, well, these young people are fiscally conservative, they just don't like the social issues. Well, if they're fiscally conservative, they should go become a Democrat. Like literally, they should go join, you know, they should go vote for Joe Biden. I mean, at least maybe if they vote Democrat, they'll have they'll have the pro-choice point of view. They'll have the pro-same-sex marriage, all the pro-LGBTQIA points of view. Plus, they can help fend off the Sanders socialist wing of the Democratic Party and make sure the Dems stay fiscally conservative. I mean, honestly, from from my perspective, that would be the best thing that could happen to the country. All these people that Tommy Lahren is talking about, they could really help keep socialism out of America by becoming good, loyal Joe Biden Democrats. So let's take the second thing. Support They support law enforcement. Okay, all these cities around the country that were claiming they were going to cut funding to the police, they're increasing funding to the police right now. So all the, this idea that all these cities that want to cut funding for the police, a lot of the, that's just bones they're throwing to the Black Lives Matter movement to keep them happy. Many of the politicians – there are some – It was some, just empty rhetoric. It's empty rhetoric. Now, there are some DSA members that have gotten elected to city council, Seattle especially, and they do claim that they want to cut funding to the police. But guess what happens when they pass a bill? The mayor vetoes it. In Washington, D.C., the city council passed a bill to cut funding to the police. The mayor, you know what the mayor did? She went and talked to a group of Georgetown residents who were concerned about it, and she assured them that any funding that the Metropolitan Police Department tells me that they need, I'm going to assure that they get it. And, of course, this just, this just angered the left in D.C. because they're like, what's the point of representative government? 
Well, the mayor, uh, Muriel Bowser, she cares a lot more about the capital that's pouring into D.C. that isn't going to keep pouring in if they cut funding for the police than she cares about what a lot of, uh, you know, leftist residents that who hate the police and hate white people and hate America want, even if they make up the majority. So, look, Democrats aren't for cutting funding for the police, the vast majority of them. That's not that's a complete non-issue. That's like 15 percent of the country that actually doesn't support the police and wants to cut funding for law enforcement. OK, the next one, support border enforcement. Okay, so this is one that is actually something that, you know, you could argue is uh, is socially conservative. They support border enforcement. But what does that actually mean? That just uh, for a lot of these people, that just means let's stop illegal immigration so we can fast track legal immigration. You know, let's open up a huge gate. Let's let's build a wall, but open up a huge gate. That's not actually doing anything for the American working class. If you make all of these illegal immigrants, if you turn them into legal immigrants, they support the military. Everybody supports the military. Like that, that maybe back during the Afghan and Iraq war back in 20, 2003, 2004, the anti-military uh, anti left was against the military that made up like 10 percent of the country. But now they're down to like 2 percent. Everybody supports the military. They support the First and Second Amendment. OK, Democrats support the First and Second Amendment. That's not an issue. Like I said, a lot of these people are moderates who are socially liberal. They need to go become Democrats. They don't need to be Republicans. And last but not least, capitalism. Okay, Joe Biden is a capitalist. They need again, they need to go be Democrats because the Democrats are capitalists. There's none of this stuff on this issue that is any different from what the mainstream mainline Democratic Party believes. What separates the Democrats from the Republicans is Republicans want to overturn Roe v. Wade. Republicans want to overturn the Obergefell decision and Republicans want to return America to a socially conservative nation rather than a nation of immigrants. And Tommy Lahren does not agree with any of that. So therefore, how can anyone say that she's conservative? But there's one more thing I wanted to address here. This um, that there there were some people who are calling her out over this. One of them is Jenna Ellis. She's kind of been making the rounds lately for kind of going to war with Ronna Romney McDaniel, chairwoman of the RNC. That's a topic for another day. Uh, and of course, Jenna Ellis. She was one of the leading lawyers on President Trump's legal team fighting the voter fraud in 2020, along with Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Joe DeGeneva, Victoria Tunsing, and all of them. She directly tweeted at Tommy Lahren without tagging her, but she tweeted at her saying, quote, Tommy Lahren is an example of a conservative, she puts conservative in quotes, who doesn't know what fundamental principles she's conserving. Young people like free market liberty and choice, but haven't thought through their worldview and where genuine freedom is derived from, in parentheses, morality. So they're inconsistent. And I, I think she is definitely correct about that. Young conservatives haven't had much time. A lot of them are so young, they haven't really thought through their worldview yet. And the idea of morality, of like Christian morality, is archaic to them. You know, again, they're associated with those, you know, crazy Bible thumpers in the 90s who said video games are satanic. Tommy Lahren did respond to this one. She quote tweeted that tweet from Jenna Ellis and said, quote, I believe in limited government, and I'm also Christian enough to know it's not up to us to judge. I was also taught that heckling and harassing others is despicable. Believe it or not, you are not the warden of conservatism or Christianity, end quote. First off, Christian enough to know it's not up to us to judge. That does not mean we are not free to judge others based on their political beliefs. Or in this case, if someone claims to be a conservative but really isn't, we absolutely have the right to judge them and police them for being incorrect, for supporting non-conservative positions, as you said, like being pro-abortion. I was also taught that heckling and harassing others is despicable. I mean, you can argue on like what levels of harassment or heckling is is not okay and what is. I mean, 
Lauren Boebert literally got elected to Congress after going viral for a video in which she heckled Beto O'Rourke at a at one of his rallies, you know, telling him, hell no, you're not taking our guns. You are not going to be you, you gun grabber. You you stay away from my guns. And she literally got elected to Congress for it. So does Tommy Lahren not like Lauren Boebert then? Because Lauren Boebert literally got famous through a, a righteous, a, I support this completely, a righteous act of heckling. Well, if you don't believe in heckling and uh, harassment, why are you in politics? Now, just to be clear, uh, harassment, we're not talking about like going to people's houses and harassing them in the dead of night like the left is. Like, you know, if you're at a conference, at a political conference for people to yell at you, heckle you while you're trying to talk to somebody else if they disagree with your beliefs, okay, that's a little disrespectful, but it's politics. You like, kind of expect it. Learn to deal with life in politics and certainly in life on the internet for that matter. Yeah, like, it's it, going to happen. Yeah, grow up. Like you shouldn't be in politics. And this is why I understand why it turns a lot of people off. Like more than half the country just completely tunes out politics outside of election years. But that's kind of a good thing mm-hmm. because a lot of those people are really good, decent people who don't need to be involved in politics. Not that you can't be a good, decent person and uh, heckle somebody. But if, you know that's kind of like it matches. If that matches your personality, you would be good for politics. It's kind of like not every. It's kind of like baseball isn't for everybody. You know, if you're a good football player, you don't need to be playing baseball. You need to be playing football. It's the same way with politics. If you're not, if you can't handle the heat of politics, this isn't for you. If she was taught that heckling is wrong, okay, don't be in politics. You shouldn't be in this business. Definitely not. And that, that ties to the last point as well, which I had to point out. Again, this whole tweet is just loaded with fallacies. The last point, believe it or not, you are not the warden of conservatism or Christianity. Jenna Ellis didn't say that she is the warden of either of those things. She's simply offering her opinion on what kind of a, quote, conservative Tommy Lahren really is. She's not claiming to be a gatekeeper of conservatism or Christianity. But you know who is acting like a gatekeeper? Tommy Lahren. Tommy Lahren herself in her tweets is saying these people who are ha- who are heckling Jenner have no right to be in our movement, that we have no room for these people in our conservative movement. These are disgusting, despicable people. You yourself are being a gatekeeper. So, <laughs> I mean, with all due respect, you know, stones and glass houses, Tommy, you might want to think twice about that. She that You can tell that was such an immediate response tweet. She did not think about it as she wrote it. She was just furious that Jenna Ellis basically kind of, you know, lectured her basically almost like a teacher lectures a really disruptive student and in front of the class with correct points and the angry student is just like the this smug cheerleader is like who she thinks she is i'm popular like yeah that's the thing but that's the thing that's what happens whenever a lot of younger conservatives end up getting thrown into media they get this air about them that because they have hundreds of thousands of eyes on them every single week and because they have hundreds of thousands of twitter followers that they're important enough to basically try to define what conservatism is, even if their definition goes against the accepted definition of conservatism going back for decades. Speaking of gatekeepers, so another story that involves claims being thrown around of this person being a gatekeeper or that person being a gatekeeper or being a fake conservative. So I think one of the most important races in the entirety of the 2022 midterm election cycle next year is the Senate race in Ohio, where incumbent Republican senator and a moderate Republican at that, Rob Portman, is not running for re-election. It's an open seat, and quite a few candidates have jumped into the primary. A few days ago, one more candidate jumped in who definitely is generating a lot of buzz and a lot of criticism from all the right people. And that is J.D. Vance. You guys may have heard that name before. He is the author of a book called Hillbilly Elegy, which is an autobiography where he basically talks about his upbringing in uh, middle America, you know, the rural Midwest in uh, Ohio, Appalachian country. 
And he it basically, it was not very political. Like, it doesn't reference Trump at all, but it talked about his family's struggle, his, the history of his working class family struggling with outsourcing of jobs, the opioid addiction crisis, so many other things that very much, it was written in 2016. And then, of course, after Trump won, it was widely cited, including by the New York Times and others, as one of the top books to read to best understand what happened in 2016, namely in regards to the absolute political revolt of the white working class in rural America, in the Midwest, that ultimately propelled Donald Trump to the White House. And J.D. Vance, he, of course, he was an author, but then before that, he was a venture capitalist who attended Yale Law School. So when you look at his resume on paper, you would think, oh, this guy does not seem like, you know, you're working class American. He comes from working class roots, but he went on to very much be part of these elitist circles for a while. But then ultimately he continued being a very vocal supporter of President Trump. And that combined with his announcement that he is running for the Senate in Ohio has earned him some very serious hate. And there are two great articles I wanted to point to on this. One is by Chris Buskirk at American Greatness, which is the website for which I write. I write news stories and occasional commentary pieces there. The title of the article, we'll post the link in the description below, is, quote, Why Trump Haters Have their, have Set Their Sights on J.D. Vance. And it points out the fact that he is drawing a lot of ire from not only the left and establishment Democrats, but also from Never Trumpers. And this excerpt right here says it all. Quote, A professor at Ohio State suggested Vance apply to Yale Law School. He was admitted to what is consistently the most competitive law school in the country. Instead of practicing law, he went to work for Trump-supporting investor Peter Thiel as a venture capitalist. Then he wrote the book, Hillbilly Elegy, and gained a modicum of celebrity with American elites. The way this usually works is that people leave places like Middletown, Ohio, where Vance is from, for places like Yale and then San Francisco. Their politics drift steadily leftward as they strive to assimilate into their new environments, to get along with their peers, and to get ahead in their careers. <laughs> that rhymed. Everyone knows how it works. For Vance, it was all intensified because of the popularity of the book. He was taken up to the mountaintop and offered the world. It's a hard offer to decline, but he did. Instead, he moved his family back to Cincinnati, about 40 minutes from his hometown, and began investing in companies in interior America, and he became more public about his convictions. Against the odds, Vance had not become a liberal who was embarrassed of his roots when he was living on the coast. He had grown to love them more, he had heard firsthand how coastal elites talk about Americans living in places like Middletown, Ohio. He had seen how wealth and opportunity were being extracted from the center of the country for the benefit of a tiny group of winners, and he wasn't having any of it. That's when those political and media elites that in 2016 and 2017 thought they had a new convert realized that Vance had rejected them. End quote. And that really is the best way of putting it. It's kind of like someone who is brought into a cult and then ultimately leaves the cult and starts telling everyone all about what the cult is doing, the cult is going to hate your guts and try to kill you, you know, like, you know, Jim Jones, Jonestown and whatnot. And in this political environment that we are in, that is super important. That was actually one of the, the best things Trump said, you know, talked about himself in 2016. He basically admitted, yeah, I am a member of the elite. That's how I know all of the tricks and the loopholes that the elite use for, say, cheating on their taxes, using certain loopholes to avoid billionaires paying their taxes. He literally said that in one of his debates with Hillary Clinton, and he said, I know these tax loopholes, and so do all of her donors, by the way, but I'm at least willing to come out and say what these loopholes are and say that I am best qualified to know which loopholes I can get rid of to make the tax system fairer for Americans. He basically said, yeah, I was in the elite. I'm obviously not in the elite anymore. They don't like me. And I'm going to use that to now fight for you as president. 
And Vance is doing the same thing here. And you could arguably even say the same of Steve Bannon, for example. A lot of people forget Steve Bannon worked for Goldman Sachs. You know, he got to have a little bit of taste of working for the elite before he ultimately decided to work for Breitbart and then the Trump campaign and the Trump administration. And Vance really does represent not just, it's not like he's just some farmer who is now running for office, which that certainly has its own appeal and it can work. You know, certainly back in my home area of California, the Central Valley, farmers run for office and get elected. But it's even more powerful that he got a taste of the elite. He made his money as a venture capitalist and he is very wealthy. He could easily fund his campaign if he wanted to by himself, but he's using what he learned from the elites and he's using the resources he got from them to turn on them. And that's why they hate him so much. And one of the things that they're putting out there about him, uh, and it's been speculated that this was actually being done by the campaign of Tim Ryan, the congressman who ran for president as a Democrat for about five minutes in 2020, who is the leading candidate for the Democratic nomination in the Senate race, that Ryan is putting out this opposition against Vance, pointing out that, yeah, in 2015 and 2016, he was against Trump. He did post some tweets that he has since deleted where he said, uh, I think roughly paraphrasing, quote, Donald Trump terrifies all the people I care about, immigrants, African-Americans, and women, and that's why he's despicable, or something along those lines. It was super virtue signaling, but of course, he has been open about that and admitted, yes, I was wrong about Trump, and I am happy to admit that I was wrong, and I came around to supporting him. So that there, if that is being put out there by Tim Ryan, it's very smart because they're trying to drive a wedge between him and the Trump base in a state that is most likely going to elect a Republican next year. It's turned into a solidly Republican state, thanks to Trump. And his new brand of working class politics for the Republican Party. And Vance is going up against some tough competition. He's going up against uh, two other candidates. Jane Timken, who was the chairwoman of the Ohio Republican Party from 2017 to 2021. Obviously, the you know political class candidate. And Josh Mandel, who was the state treasurer of Ohio, who was the nominee for the U.S. Senate in 2012 when he lost to Sherrod Brown, the Democrat. And then in 2018, he ran for the candidacy again to run uh, in what was going to be a rematch with Sherrod Brown. And polling showed he was more likely to beat Brown that year because, as we know, 2018 was a great year for Republican senators, Ohio especially being a deep red state. But then he suddenly dropped out of the primary for I don't know what reasons. I think he said family issues or some reason like that. So then he dropped out and the nomination went to another guy, a congressman named Jim Renacci, who went on to lose to Sherrod Brown. So Mandel has had some troubles of his own. He's proven to be kind of a bad candidate in the past. So J.D. Vance should be the candidate. He really deserves this shot. He has been endorsed uh, by Tucker Carlson. He announced his bid on Tucker Carlson's show. He was endorsed by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and has already received some very hefty financial donations from Peter Thiel as well as Rebecca Mercer. So he's got a great war chest and he's got the capital of saying, you know, I was working class and I understand the working class. He just has to overcome these candidates who are more ingrained in Ohio Republican politics. But the fact that the elites really are going after him, even the littlest things on Snapchat, I saw this on Snapchat the other day. There's this stupid, obviously far left channel on Snapchat called Not My Party, which does nothing but just call Republicans neo-Nazis. And they had a picture of J.D. Vance with the headline, is this hillbilly Trump 2.0? Question <laughs> mark. Which, no, he's not Trump 2.0. He never will be. But the fact that they are calling him Trump 2.0 and trying to gin up fear of him among the, you know, the millennials and Zoomers who use Snapchat shows that I think they're scared of him and they're trying to get uninformed left-wing voters to be scared of him. And there's a reason for that. And that leads me to one other article I want to point out. It's an opinion piece from the Washington Post uh, by – I know it's the Washington Post, but it's by Henry Olson. He's another one of the token you know, conservatives there, but he's not like uh, uh, Jennifer Rubin and Max Boot, like terrible, like fake conservative. He's actually a decent writer. His opinion piece is titled, quote, J.D. Vance is scaring America's elite. Good. And I think the definitive excerpt here says, quote, 
Anger on the right stems from the naive belief among many conservative intellectuals and commentators that the Trump era was a mirage and that free market fundamentalism can now resume its reign at the top of the conservative policy hierarchy, which is obviously referencing, you know, the, the those who really still support free trade to this day and are all, oh, protectionism isn't a good thing. You know, tariffs are bad. We need the free market, bro. Let the free market work things out. The Shapiro argument. And they never liked Trump for that issue alone, even though those policies were proven to work in bringing jobs back to America in the Midwest. Olson goes on to say, quote, these pundits want Vance's smart economic populism to fail because they know their goose is cooked if he wins. Because that absolutely would, while that would mark a huge victory for a Republican in Ohio, which was previously a swing state, it would not be the kind of Republican that these bow tie wearing, you know, policy wonks want it to be, which is a free market. Oh, yes, yes. Let the companies outsource their jobs to China if it makes things a few cents cheaper because, you know, that, that we're saving money and that's fiscal responsibility. And they understand that Vance, like Trump, is bucking the trends of what being a conservative used to be, what being a fiscal conservative used to be. You know, like we said earlier, fiscal conservatism is dead, basically, and Trump has helped shift the Republican, or is trying to help shift the Republican Party away from that because it was not politically popular anymore. And Vance is doing the same thing. But the fact they are going so hard out of the way to attack this guy, I think, shows he is by far the best candidate. He understands the problems of outsourcing jobs. He understands that tariffs and protectionism are the answer. He's also very solid on immigration, by the way, legal and illegal immigration. And this will be a definitive race. If he loses that nomination, that will be proof, I think, that the Republican Party has a long way to go before we can change, make this transformation that Trump started that needs to happen. But if he wins the nomination and then most likely goes on to win the general election, then it will be a very good sign in the right direction. Well, for our main topic, we're actually going to talk about something we very rarely talk about on the right take, which is foreign policy and international affairs. We have a, as you probably know, if, uh, if you follow the news at all, Cuba is blowing up like crazy. That is correct. Over the weekend, there were spontaneous protests bursting out all across the country of Cuba, including in the capital city of Havana, chanting, among other things, they were chanting Libertad. And we actually have some footage from on the ground in Cuba. I <laughs> actually wait a minute. No, 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 that's not right. I'm sorry. That is that's a scene from the movie Scarface. <laughs> that's a scene from the, the opening of Scarface where the main characters are tasked with assassinating a former aide de Castro in exchange for getting their green cards. <laughs> because I, I just had to say the moment I saw those first few videos of the actual protest, because yes, they actually were chanting Libertad in the streets. The moment I first saw those videos, I immediately thought of that scene from Scarface. I just rewatched it on Netflix the other day. It's a great movie, by the way, for those of you who haven't seen it. It really is a very great take on the American dream, admittedly from the wrong side of the law, but it is a great movie. Al Pacino, great actors. It's it's a fantastic movie. Um, but in all complete seriousness, yes, Cuba is seeing protests that, by all accounts, are unprecedented over the last few decades. There has not been such a spontaneous outburst of what clearly are anti-government, anti-communist, pro-democracy protests, where some protesters in the streets, in addition to the Cuban flag, of course, are waving the American flag. So there's obviously this has generated a lot of interest on the American right, understandably so, because it, as it has been pointed out, Cuba is one of the last communist regimes in the world alongside China, North Korea, and a few others. It, one of the last relics of the Cold War. You know, the Castro regime is it, 
obviously it is no longer the Castro regime. Fidel Castro himself, of course, the infamous dictator of Cuba, died in November of 2016, shortly after Trump's election. And he was succeeded by his younger brother, Raul Castro, who announced earlier this year in April that he was stepping down and was succeeded by Miguel Diaz-Canel as the new first secretary of the Communist Party of Cuba. So it is still very much the communist infrastructure that was built by the Castro revolution in 1959. But this and maybe maybe the stepping down of Raul Castro was kind of a catalyst, this symbolic change that many of the populace believed led that led many of the populace to believe they now had maybe more freedom to protest. Although there are reports that the government did actually shut down internet and Wi-Fi access in this capital city of Havana and other locations because some protesters were trying to stream it to social media. What's interesting is there doesn't seem to be any kind of serious pro-revolution uh, take on the in the mainstream media, like pro-Castro take in the mainstream media. You would have probably gotten this maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, Definitely during – possibly during the Cold War. Well, I don't know, but during the Cold War, you would have at least gotten it with the, the hardcore left. But even the hardcore left, I think most people on the left in America recognize that the regime in Cuba is totalitarian. It's authoritarian, and it's not something they really want to be aligned with. Now, of course, what they're going to immediately come back with is, well, it's not real socialism. It's kind of like with every communist country. Like That's what they all say. Yeah, yeah. they argue, well, the Soviet Union wasn't real socialism. China's not real socialism. Cuba's not real socialism. Oh, if we ever tried real socialism, we'd have a great country. But uh, but that that was kind of surprising because I was expecting to see a little bit of commentary on, you know, why we this the, the, it's the U.S. It's all America's fault. You know, it's because of the U.S. embargo that these protests are happening that they don't have any food or any medical supplies. If, if America just lifted the embargo, then all of their ills and woes would go away. The great socialist utopia would finally come to fruition. But you don't really see that. And I think the drubbing that Donald Trump gave Joe Biden in the state of Florida last year plays a major role into that. Because when you consider that in Miami-Dade County, Hillary Clinton beat Trump by 30 points in 2016, and then Trump came back and only lost by like seven or eight points to Joe Biden, it shows that this Cuba issue really does play a huge role in Florida. And it wasn't just the Trump candidacy. It was all – it was down ballot. Like Republicans, they cleaned house. Like they took over – they took every single statewide office in 2018, and then they completely cleaned up. They cleaned house in 2020. So that is it, – it has pretty much turned – because of that Cuban vote, Florida has turned from a swing state into a solidly red state. And when you have Florida going even more red than Georgia, then you you know it's really – it's a serious seismic shift. And I think that's why you're seeing the American left really, really measure their words on this issue, even on Reddit, which I was surprised outside of the social circles on Reddit. Like it's not – there's not really much pro-Cuban as far as gov the government goes. There's not much pro-Cuban sentiment. Like pretty much everybody is with the protesters on this. So what's interesting is obviously you would expect people of Cuban ancestry to support the, the protesters to want the regime to fall, to hope that there is a transition of power. But this is something that's a little bit concerning about conservatives is they seem to still act like we're in the Cold War, like the, a fall of the Castro regime would be as much a blow for – like a fall of the Castro regime during the Cold War would have been beneficial for us because the Soviet Union would no longer have a backdoor into America, whereas today the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. So – if the regime in Cuba went away and the, what's the guy's name? Canel is his last name. The, the Diaz Canel. Diaz Canel. Yeah. yeah. So let's say he stepped down. So obviously there's mass protests. 
their protest in the fact the lack of food, the lack of COVID-19 vaccine, the lack of medical supplies, the misery, the poverty, and also they want libertad. They're tired of living under a communist dictatorship. So let's say he stepped down tomorrow. Let's say he just said, okay, I'm going to listen to the people. I'm going to resign. What happens? What happens next? Well, obviously— the Power com- vacuum, right? There's a—well, there's a, there's, that's assuming that the Communist Party falls. So if he himself steps down, all that's going to happen is another communist apparatchik is going to step up in his place, and they're just going to have a change of executives. The Communist Party infrastructure is still going to be in place. A new leader is going to step forward and say, okay, I'm going to do things better. We're going to organize our economy better. We're going to provide, you know, he's going to basically provide window dressing to the protesters. We're going to give you a few extra. We're going to throw you a few bones, kind of like in France after the yellow vest protests were launched. The government oh, I said, remember those. yeah, the government said, OK, well, we're going to we're going to lower the age of retirement. We're going to add extra unemployment benefits. So basically just give me we're going to give you a few more benefits if you'll stop protesting, which is that's kind of what might happen in Cuba, because these are the lar- uh, largest protests I think we've ever seen in Cuba since communism took over in that country. I don't I don't think there's ever been a point where we had protests on this scale, but nothing really is essentially going to change. If that happens, the Cubans in Miami are going to keep protesting. The Cubans in Tampa are going to keep protesting. But are the Cubans on the island going to keep protesting? That's that's kind of a question that we would have to wait and see if something like this took place. Another alternative would be if the if the government decided, okay, we're going to do what Eastern Europe did. A lot of those countries, when there was mass protests, they just decided the the leaders of the communist parties in those countries said, okay, we're going to just dismantle communism. We're going to slowly privatize when a transition into a market economy, and we're going to have free and fair elections. If something like that happened, there's a number of things that could happen. First of all, you've got a large Cuban community in the United States that loves Cuba more than they love the United States. And this is very this is made very obvious by their rhetoric. For instance, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, who happens to be a Republican, probably probably the Republican of the largest probably Miami is probably the largest Republican led city in the country. I mean, you come to think about it, it's very odd to have a Republican mayor of a city that big. But he actually is explicitly calling for Biden to use the military to invade Cuba and overthrow their government. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen. Biden is not going to send the military into Cuba and overthrow their government. I mean, if Trump didn't send the military into Venezuela and overthrow the Venezuelan government after he recognized Juan Guaido as the legitimate ruler of Venezuela, Joe Biden is certainly not going to send the U.S. government or the U.S. military to overthrow the Pinel government. But it shows— The fact that anybody would say that is just absurd to me. Like, yeah, okay, the communist regime there is evil. We don't like Castro's acolytes. We would love for the people of Cuba to be free. To suggest that we go bomb them, like, when they're 90 miles off our coast? Are you kidding me? Like, that is literally the last—when we are on the verge of finally getting out of the longest war in our history, the last thing we need is another one that's even closer than the Middle East. And the reference point that he used to argue that the United States has justification to bomb Cuba during this was the Kosovo crisis. He argued that in 1999, the United States bombed Serbia because of what was going on in Kosovo, so we have precedent for this. Is he unaware that the Republican Party pretty much unanimously opposed that? Like the party he's in completely opposed that. That was My, something. how the tables have turned. In 1999, under Bill Clinton, we ended up going and bombing Serbia. I think there were like 10,000 Serb civilians that ended up getting killed, destroyed a lot of their economy. We bombed the Chinese embassy. I mean, you know, just kind of just stuff like that. And obviously Republicans saw that. They said, this is immoral. This is not what we, this is not who we are. This is not what we should be doing as a country. We shouldn't be using our military like this as the world's police force to you know, police a conflict that we don't have any stake in. 
And this guy is saying, well, look, we did it in Serbia. Let's go do it in Havana as well. No, no, this doesn't. The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Cuba is not a backdoor into the United States. It this is not, not 1962. They're not pointing nukes at us again. Correct. Nobody's uh, China isn't going to move any nukes into Cuba. That's not a that's not a threat. Cuba is no threat whatsoever to the United States. This is simply a matter of a bunch of Cuban exiles who love Cuba more than they love the United States because they are not American patriots. They are Cuban patriots. Now. Again, like they like most exiles from other countries, many times they vote Republican because they appreciate freedom. They appreciate free markets. It's like Venezuelans who flee, flee to the United States. There's a huge Venezuelan population in Florida. There's a huge Nicaraguan population in Florida, and they overwhelmingly supported Trump because they came from totalitarian leftist regimes, and they know what leftism does to a country. And they're seeing it in this current Democratic Party. Correct. And there's, al and there's also the slight historical basis as well. I, we were talking about this as well off the, offline the, earlier, that just as African-Americans feel kind of indebted to the Democratic Party as a result of all the civil rights bills that Johnson signed in the 60s, Cuban Americans, at least the ones who are in America today, who have been around for decades, the older generations and those raised by those generations, they first came to – obviously, the Castros took over in 59. They overthrew the Batista regime in the final years of the Eisenhower presidency. So the refugees fled the Cuba and fled that new communist regime while Eisenhower was president. Of course, Eisenhower was a Republican. He let them in and basically you know, welcomed the Cuban refugees with open arms. And then right after he left office, he had a guy named JFK who turned around and horrendously screwed over the Cubans with a little something called the Bay of Pigs invasion. So subsequently, Cubans look back now at history and think they have a reason to not only love Republicans, but to hate Democrats. And for those transgressions alone by Kennedy and the generosity of Eisenhower, they have been historically loyal to the Republican Party. And mm -hmm. certainly continuing with this day as the Democrats start to lean back into, you know, socialist rhetoric, like with with some other members of the party who are openly calling themselves socialists, they may now have a renewed reason, just as they were kind of drifting away from Republicans a little bit, to now go back to Republicans. And we saw that, again, with Trump, who won Florida by four points last year, which in Florida standards is a landslide. And just like Blacks, as you mentioned, migrated to the Democratic Party in mass, which they started voting for Democrats during FD, under FDR, but they especially went hardcore for Democrats under LBJ is because they saw the Democratic Party as helping their group, not them individually or the nation as a whole, but they saw that party as helping their group. And this is why Cubans, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans are voting for Republicans because they see the Republican Party beyond – obviously they agree on an ideological – the ideological spectrum with free markets. They want you know, less government, all that stuff, all that good stuff. But they are primarily voting for Republicans because they see the Republican Party as helping their group and their nation, the nation – specifically the nations they came from. And I remember listening to a podcast in which it was a bunch of Hispanic Americans after one of the debates between Biden and Trump, and they were arguing that the Hispanics are primarily – this was late. Like this was late. This is like the third debate. They were saying that Hispanics are primarily the only swing voters at that point in time, and the conservative who wanted uh, Trump to win, he was saying that he, the only – they asked him, what do you think that Trump should do to win Hispanics over – and his answer was, I think Trump should talk more about how we can have regime change in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and these other countries. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you got to understand, you're asking for our president to commit American blood and money, blood and treasure to other countries. That that was one of the things that he ran on. That was why he got elected. 
Like there was no more the, wars. Exactly. No more wars. No more no more blood in the sand. No more bl- spilling our blood and treasure abroad to help other people in other countries. We need to turn our focus inward on the United States and focus our attention on the United States. And this is the thing. This is why there's a collective silence among the base of the Republican Party, among Trump's core supporters on the Cuba issue. It's mainly the talking heads, the pundits, Fox News, the politicians, the Cuban-Americans who are really loud about this. The average— Rubio. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Shocking. So surprising. Absolutely nobody. Yeah, correct. But the reason why the average MAGA voter is kind of nonchalant about this issue is because this isn't why they voted for Trump. They didn't vote for Trump. They don't vote, period. So the United States can be an imperial power and go spread freedom and democracy abroad. And the thing is, there's no reason for them to feel that way because we never signed up for this. The American people never signed up to be an empire. This was forced on us. As we covered in one of our previous episodes, under Harry Truman, the Truman administration swindled the American people into accepting the Truman Doctrine, which is this idea that the United States has an obligation to go slay monsters abroad, which is in complete opposition to what the founders wanted for our foreign policy. We had a similar situation in the 1800s before the Civil War when you had revolutions breaking out in Europe. You had all these country, all these peoples in Europe who were dominated by empires the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Turkish Empire, the Russian Empire, and they wanted to overthrow these empires and develop liberal, democratic, free market states of their own that would be governed by their own people. And the Hungarians were one of the leaders of this of this movement. You had Hungarian patriots who were coming to the United States. They were meeting with senators, with academics in America, and obviously Americans felt very strongly about their cause, but we never lifted a finger to help them. And President Zachary Taylor, after they get, the Hungarians got crushed by the Austrians, he explained, you know, I, I, I support their cause. I was partial to their cause. He sent an, he tried to get the ambassador in Austria to mediate a ceasefire between the Hungarians and the Austrians and try to get them to develop, you know, have some kind of Hungarian autonomy before he had a chance. The Austrians got the Russians to come in and crush the Hungarians uh, through the back door. And this is the way it was for most Americans. Most Americans were very sympathetic to the Hungarians, but we weren't going to go send troops half a world away to go die for a cause and a people that we didn't know or care much about. And the average American didn't know anything or care anything about it. It's mostly just the American elites. And it's the same way with Cuba. Yes, most Americans sympathize with the Cubans. I hope that the regime gets overthrown. I hope they have free elections. But it's not, you know, this, the idea that we should go use our Air Force to bomb Cuba. No, I mean, I agree with DeSantis. DeSantis is calling on Biden to use the Space Force to blast satellite internet down to Cuba so they can continue to organize and help them. That's certainly justified. We should certainly do that. But we shouldn't be sending any bombs their way. But going back to what I was saying about what would happen if the regime did step down, and not just the, not just their president, but also the entire Communist Party, if they resigned and decided to do what they did in Eastern Europe whenever communism fell and just have a peaceful transition to a democratic government, which would honestly, that would be the best solution. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> that's just, I just don't see the communist government in Cuba throwing up the white flag and saying, okay, Yankees, we're going to give up and have democratic elections uh, if you'll promise not to come down here and kill us or anything like that. That's just not going to happen. But if, if that did happen, let's think about what would happen next. You have a huge Cuban population in America that still sees themselves as Cubans, not as Americans. When that happens, what are they going to do? They're going to immediately flood the island of Cuba and be like, okay, we're here to take over. 
We're here to liberate y'all. After being gone for 60 years, we're going to come back and claim our rightful place as the intellectuals and the academics and the politicians in this country. Then you're going to have the anti-communist Cubans who are there now. They're going to be like, wait a minute, why are all these Cuban Yankees coming into this country trying to take over? Then you're going to have the people who are still sympathetic to Marxism that are going to be voting. And you're going to have, you know, multiple, even if you have a multi-party democracy, it's liable to completely devolve into civil war. Then you're going to have the Cuban Americans saying, "Okay, well, Uncle Sam, you need to come help us out. Now, why don't you annex us like you annex Puerto Rico? They're going to be calling for annexation. You're going to have dozens of different factions drawing the United States politically into the political affairs of Cubans. And so it's going to be a complete mess. Either way this ends, whether the dictatorship continues, it's going to continue to be a mess for the Cubans. If the dictatorship doesn't doesn't end, obviously the plight of the Cubans is going to be relieved. But what about the United States? Like, are we going to try to turn this into Puerto Rico 2.0? I mean, this is this is a problem. This is something I posted on Gab earlier for our account. There's this I was looking up a, a video of the protest in Cuba and underneath there was a comment that got a lot of likes. Apparently a Cuban, he said, quote, we want to return to Cuba when we are free, but we love this country for welcoming us. Thank you very much to the United States. And this kind of sums up the sentiment of most Cubans. They do love the United States. They're very thankful for the United States and us you know, welcoming in, them into our country. But we're still a step home. Like, you know, we're not their original home. We're still kind of like a step home. They it's, see America's this is, like, like it's like a rest stop, basically. It's kind like of like a, a rest yeah. stop. Yeah, we're, we're kind of like a rest stop on the way because they want to go back to Cuba. They don't want to be here. They want, they to, want be to go back Cuba. to a free Cuba, quote unquote. Yes, they want to be back in, in uh, Cuba Libre. They don't want to be in the United States. My opinion on this is conservatives need to back down. They need to stand down on this. They need to they need to stop acting like we're still living in the Cold War because it is not in our national interest one way or the other if Cuba remains communist or if Cuba uh, becomes a market economy. As it stands right now, the only thing that's stopping us from benefiting from Cuba is our own embargo. If we lifted the embargo, let's just take one example besides the tourism that you know Americans could go you know, smoke some cigars in Havana other than that luxury. Let's just take the issue of sugar. Because we don't import any more Cuban sugarcane – most of our sugar comes from high fructose corn syrup because we subsidize our corn farmers, which makes corn extremely cheap, which makes high fructose corn syrup extremely cheap, which is a lot unhealthier for people than regular sugar. So that's why if you go to any foreign country or if you drink imported sodas like Mexican soda, it tastes so much better than American soda because American soda is made with high fructose corn syrup, whereas syrup in Europe, syrup in Mexico and these other countries, they're made out of real sugar. If you went back in time to the 60s and 70s in America, our Coca-Cola would taste a whole lot better than what tastes now, and it would be a lot healthier for you. I mean, sugar itself isn't healthy, but it's a, it's a whole lot better than high fructose corn syrup. That's another reason that, you know high fructose corn syrup is tied to diabetes, to heart disease, to all kinds of health problems. So Americans would benefit, actually, if we lifted the embargo. But right now, it's not the communist regime that's stopping us from trading with them. It's our own policies. And if you think about it, why do we even have the embargo on them? It's just to please the Cuban-Americans who want to see the regime gone. They, they feel like if we squeeze the Cuban regime by stopping the flow of American products, then eventually the people are going to get in the streets and revolt. The regime is going to fall, and then they can finally go back to their homeland. Because the thing is, if the communist government fell in Cuba and we eventually completely became a progressive country, what do you think we're going to be exporting to Cuba among the transgender ideology? We're going to be exporting the Green New Deal. We'll just be, go set up a Green New Deal in their government, and you know that, that's what would end up happening. 
Yeah, it's just, it's it's such, it feels to me like just such misdirection. Like when not too long ago, the right as a whole was talking about critical race theory and they were, they're still talking about big tech censorship, but now suddenly everyone is just talking about Cuba and Cuba, 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 Cuba. And like, I get it. It's interesting. And again, the scope of these protests could very well qualify as historic just by how spontaneous they were and how large they are. But at the end of the day, this is not going to be an issue in 2022. This is not going to be an issue in 2024. It's tempting to talk about an old boogeyman that we're all familiar with, you know, Fidel Castro, one of the great villains of the 20th century, you know, Cuba, one of the last remnants of the Cold War. But we need to focus on what matters to the American people, the American working class that they are going to care about, that they're going to be thinking about when they cast their votes in 2022, whether it's for candidates like J.D. Vance or in 2024 for candidates like whether it's former President Trump running again or whoever is running again. Whoever's running in 2024 had better be talking way more about immigration and critical race theory and big tech and voter fraud and a lot less about Cuba. Yeah, and it reminds me, we were actually having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with someone about the trajectory of America, where America is going, what America is going to look like in the next few decades. And uh, the person we were talking to, he mentioned that one thing that he sees happening is that America is going to be a place where every country and every faction around the world is going to try to move in and have a piece of the pie. Because as Americans become more fractured, uh, more you know, at each other's throats, and, and cease to see themselves as one united people in this country, then more people around the more nations around the world will try to come divide us up. And every political movement is going to have foreign sponsors. And we already have that with like every single pretty much every single major news outlet on the right has foreign sponsors or foreign interests. And so this is what you're going to end up seeing. This is what we saw at the protest you know, at the Stop the Steel rallies. You had a bunch of Chinese dissidents there who were, you know, arguing that we need to invade China and take over China and take down the CCP and all that stuff. And the average American voter, American first nationalist, does not care. It's not. It's like they don't know anything about China, and they don't need to know anything about China. Their family lives here. American families don't live in Cuba. American families don't live in China or American families are not Uyghurs. So while we wish other people around the world well, while just like our ancestors wish the Hungarians well in their pursuits of liberty and self-determination, we have to focus on our country. We have to make sure that our descendants have self-determination because if we continue if we continue to focus on all these other countries, if we every single election, if the Republican candidate is talking about bringing freedom to every other country around the world, our descendants won't have any self-determination. And while other countries may be free, our descendants will end up having to go flee to these countries as exiles that are their ancestors decided to make free rather than focusing on their own country. That's the thing. The only reason why we're able to absorb exiles from other countries and be a beacon of freedom is because our ancestors focused on America first. They didn't go around slaying monsters because if we had gotten involved in Hungary back in the mid-1800s and decided to send troops to Europe and defend freedom and defend democracy in Europe, you know that would have completely broken the United States military. That would have completely destroyed America as a world power. We wouldn't have had that we wouldn't have been the arsenal of democracy in World War One. We wouldn't have been able to fight a war and win a war on two fronts that we did in World War II because we would be so spent in Europe from the 19th century. So the reason why we're able to be a beacon of freedom and accept exiles is because our ancestors focused on America first and didn't send our troops abroad and didn't focus on the politics of other countries. So while I understand that Cuban Americans are you know, very passionate about what's happening in Cuba, blocking freeways in Miami – is not the way to win American sympathy for your cause. And it's, you know, honestly, if you care that much about it, go to Cuba, like go back to Cuba 
and become a Cuban dissident in Cuba. Don't use our country as a launching pad to pretend like it's still, you know, a month after the Bay of Pigs. That really is a scary thought, the idea that, you know, the future Americans will be fleeing to other countries that we enable to be free because our country is no longer free. That would be a very cynical uh, cycle of history, easily a tragedy worthy of the Roman Empire itself. But hopefully that will not happen. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Once again, be sure to follow all of our content at righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe for all of our social media sites and podcast platforms where we are available. And stay tuned. We may have some more special surprises coming up for you guys, including more guests. You guys have been very receptive to our last few guest episodes. Tom Papper, Caitlin Bennett, Alex Hall. And we've got someone else coming up very soon who will be on the show. So stay tuned for that. And until then, we'll talk to you next week, guys.